So uh, we're in the discourses of Matthew. Um, I'm hoping we're going to finish um, the the last two, but I'm so excited to get into the book of Psalms that um, I wouldn't be surprised if we just hijack this whole thing and, and go over there. So we'll see if I've got the the, the stick to itiveness to finish this before we move. Um, we started the Sermon on the Mount. We went there. We talked about how the gospel talks about the inside of us, goes in and deals with our hearts and motives. We went to the missional discourse, talked about how Jesus sends us out. And the gospel is not just about inside. It's about going out on mission with God and moving. And then uh, for the last few weeks, we've been in the parabolic discourse where Jesus teaches this entire sermon out of parables, these, these kind of word pictures and stories. We started kind of talking about why he uses parables and uh, learned a few shocking things there. We talked about the parable of the sower and how he talks about throwing seed and, and it going out. And at the end game of Jesus putting seed in our heart is that we would be fruitful for other people, fruitful for the world, that the that fruit is how the soil provides for others and that, that God doesn't just put into us so that we can be blessed. He puts into us so that we can be a blessing, so that we can go out and give to others and make the world better and, uh, and actually um, be a positive influence in the world. That's why he invests in us so that we can go out and invest in others. Then two weeks ago in a uh, kind of autopilot VBS hangover, if you don't know what that is, you've never really thrown yourself into a vacation Bible school. But uh, two weeks ago, I preached on the parable of the wheat and tares. I have no idea what I said. Like I say, I was completely hung over on VBS. And so um, I hope it was good, but I can't remember a word of it. But no, we talked about um, how Jesus talks about that the wheat and the weeds were growing together and how the real tension point of the parable was that you, you've got good seed and bad seed in the same garden and, and that the, the workers wanted to know, you know, do we, what do we do? You know, do we tear out the weeds? Do we tear out the, the tares and try to, try to create a perfect garden? And, uh, and the shocking part, the kind of counterintuitive part was Jesus said, no, leave them, leave them alone, do nothing. That was his advice, was do nothing. Let them grow together. Um, we talked about how he basically said, first, do no harm. Uh, his exact words were, you'll mess up the wheat if you go tearing at it. So it's not our job to sort out who's in and who's out and who's, you know, who's, you know, we're just supposed to love people. We're supposed to let everybody come and be uh, inviting and accepting. And, uh, and uh, the sorting is above our pay grade. That's not our job. Um, so tonight we heard a reading um, about the next two parables, kind of short little parables that he gave back to back. Um, and these will be the first parables that he doesn't offer an explanation for. So this is going to be a little interesting. The first two we studied, the disciples went to him and said, hey, what does that mean? We don't get it. And he gave them a good breakdown. And there's something I do want to kind of bring out is that um, every time the disciples asked, he gave them an explanation. Like he gave them, uh, you know, we talked about in that in that first week how one of the reasons he said he uses parables was so that those who are invested in the kingdom can get something from them, but they're, they're just kind of stories and gibberish to those who aren't invested. Um, and that it, it almost, and, and this is, this is a real thing. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody make a, like an argument against Christianity and it's compelling. And you're like, you know, I, I, I can't, I wish I could give you all the, the logical reasons why my faith works, but I can't. You would almost have to be on my side to get it. There, there's nothing I can say to con, to fully convince you. It's, it's one of those things. And this is how faith works. We, we tend to think, answer my questions and I'll believe. And God flips it and goes, believe, and then I'll answer your questions. Like when you put your faith in, when you invest and you become part of it and, you, and you're, you're in, then, like we see in, these, in this 
in this discourse, then he answers your questions. And, that, and that's, we talked from the beginning of this that as we study these discourses, this isn't just Jesus bringing us a good teaching. Like we're not in this so that Jesus can, can teach us. We're doing this so that this teaching can bring us to Jesus. And so I hope that there's one thing you get from this discourse is that he's, he does answer questions. That he does, you know, when we're invested in the kingdom and when we're in and we're, we're, uh, we're committed to this, to this thing, he, he does answer our questions. He, when we come to him and we ask for insight and we say, hey, I don't get this. What is this about? He does answer us. And, and we see that in this discourse. Every single time the disciples ask, they do get an answer. And so, um, so here's what we're going to do tonight. Out of these two little, uh, these two little small parables about the seed, the mustard seed, and the yeast, the leaven, we're going to start by just kind of looking at some base level similarities just to kind of lay a general geography of what we're talking about here. Then we're going to pull them apart and talk about some of the subtle differences because I don't think these are just two different ways of saying the same thing. I think there are some differences here. And then we're going to put them back together and hopefully go a little bit deeper into what the similarities are. And we're going to do all that in not over 90 minutes, so we've got to move fast. Um, no, <laughs> kidding. Um, so first we're going to deal with the most obvious, hopefully. Whoops. Oh, I guess we didn't move. Size matters. Jesus' uh, point here seems to be uh, the surprising smallness of the kingdom beginnings, the surprising smallness of, of the mustard seed and the leaven. And this is, this is what it seems like on, on, the, on the base level. And it's true of the church. When you imagine that the church was this tiny group of people um, and really not just small, but beat up. Like when we look at the state of them after Jesus rose, you got two of them who are basically escaping Jerusalem to go to Emmaus and he catches them, reveals himself to them. They immediately turn around and head back. So you can tell the Jerusalem was supposed to be the core and they were just leaving until they realized Jesus really was risen. They came back. You've got some of them went back to fishing. They went back to their careers. Like, obviously, we missed it. And they, they're fishing again. And he goes and catches them. And some of them were locked behind closed doors because it says they were afraid of the Jews and what the people who killed Jesus might do to them. And so they're hiding. And, and from this bizarre little group of ragamuffins, Jesus started this thing we call the church. And 2,000 years later, we're still kind of flowing in this same stream that was started with this ridiculously small beginning, this ridiculously tiny um, trickle that's now this gigantic river. It's also true of the Jewish story. When you think about an entire nation, the entire nation of Israel begun with a promise of one baby to one old couple. You know, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you a baby. And they laughed because they were so old. And that that one baby, that one you know, birth that probably shouldn't have happened, that one miracle birth, spawned a nation. And now we, and to this day, Israel is still a nation because of, and with this tiny beginning. And, and the entire Bible, story after story, seems to re- reinforce this theme that little, little things, that God uses little things. But I don't think that's actually the theme of this parable. I think the theme of this parable is different. It's that God measures differently than we do. It's not that God um, isn't concerned with the size of things. It's that he actually measures differently. We tend to look at these parables and stress the smallness of the mustard seed. But I think God looks at these parables and stresses the bigness of the tree that it becomes, the, the grandness of the end result. I think the good comparison of this is Saul and David. Um, does anybody remember why Saul was chosen king of Israel? In 2 Samuel, it says this. 
My son Saul was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He stood head and shoulders above anyone else in the land. They picked him because he was tall, like because he was a big, tall, strapping, handsome guy. And that's why that's basically how he became king. The people measured Saul's height. And then when 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 Saul kind of fell through and God sent Samuel to David, he actually said to, to, to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And that's why he chose David. So it wasn't that God wasn't measuring. It's that God was measuring something different than we measure. He was measuring something different than that we can't see. And I think it works like this. We tend to use a tape measure where God uses a scale. I'm going to explain that a little bit. Um, because uh, the Hebrew word, um, there's a Hebrew word, kabod, which means weightiness and heaviness. It's their, it's their, it's their word for when something is heavy. It's, a, it's kabod. Like, so someone's weight would be their kabod. Um, and then from this word, they derived a different word, kabod. Anybody know what kabod is? It's kind of one of those Hebrew catchphrases we throw around quite a bit. The kabod of God. It's, it's their word for glory. For glory. So when they're talking about the glory of God, they're talking about his weightiness, his heaviness, that God comes with impact, with weight. It's not just, you know, cause, we, cause if I asked you to define glory, how would you define it? Like his shininess, his, like, like, like it's a, it's a hard word to define glory. Like we, we tend to know what it means instinctively, but we don't really have a definition. The Jews would say the kabod of God, the glory of God is how, how weighty he is, how much impact he has. That is his, Kabod. So when God uh, measures, he doesn't measure size. He measures kabod. He measures the weight and more specifically, the, the weight of potential. God doesn't look at David and see um, a boy with a sheep. He looks at David and he sees a king who is going to shape the imagination of a people so dramatically that from his kingdom onward, they're not even going to be able to think about their own future outside of his lineage. Like that he's going to, that his, his uh, reign is going to have such an impact, such a weight, that from then on, Israel will speak of the line of David. They'll speak of the Messiah being the son of David. That, that this one shepherd boy is going to affect a nation so dramatically that from that point forward, they won't be able to talk about themselves outside of his reign, outside of his lineage. That's weight. That's, that's kabod. That's impact, like heaviness. And so God doesn't look at a mustard seed and see a seed. He looks at a mustard seed and he sees this big plant that can, that can nest birds and, and he sees the, the potential in this seed. He sees the weight of this tiny seed, that there's so much kabod in this tiny seed, so much impact that's hidden in this littleness. When God reaches down and saves us, he doesn't see the mess we are. He doesn't see the, how pitiful and insignificant we are. He sees the impact he wants our life to have on the world around us. He sees the kabod, the weight that our salvation can have. When God speaks to our hearts on nights like tonight, he doesn't just see a sermon. He doesn't just see a, a Bible study. 
He sees the kabod of that word. He sees the weight that that word can have on our lives, that that word can go in and actually change us and actually compel us to go out and do great. He doesn't see uh, the, the bondage that we come in. He, does, he sees the freedom that we walk out in. And not just the freedom we walk out in, but then the people that we're going to help free. He sees the, the weight that his word has. I love the way Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians. He says, but we all with unveiled faiths, beholding as in a mirror the glory or the weight of the Lord. And we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, from weight to weight, from kabod to kabod, just as by the Spirit of God. So God doesn't measure us as we are. He doesn't look at us and see what we are. He looks at us and sees the weight of what we can be, the weight of what He wants to do in our lives. So yeah, size matters but not in the way that people generally think about it. Jesus says the kingdom is about the weight of potential. It's about the kabod of potential, what can be. It's not about how small the seed is. It's about how big the resulting tree is. It's not about how little of amount of leaven it takes to make a loaf of bread. It's about the impact it has on all of the flour. So both these parables are about the weight of potential. But there are some differences. Because the seed is talking about this external thing, this external entity that is created from this little seed. And it's, it's talking about how sound and significant the resulting um, entity is, this tree that comes. So much that, that birds can nest in it. It actually affects the surrounding environment. And I believe this is a picture of the church, not like the local church, but the church proper, the whole church. Because if you go back and look through history, um, it's like when it's like God, you know, when he looked down at this sin soaked world, this broken world where everything is messed up, the fix he chose, the best way he, he came up with to fix it was the church. Like when you think about when Jesus died and and he uh, and he told his disciples he was going to ascend to the father and they didn't want him to leave. They didn't want him to ascend. He said, no, it's good if I ascend because then I can send you the Holy Spirit. And we, we tend to think of that. We think, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit's omnipresent. He can go more places. He can, he can be convicting more people. He can go all throughout the world where Jesus in his incarnate form can only really be in one place at one time. See, so, yeah, the Holy Spirit would be better at advancing the kingdom. Except, what did the Holy Spirit do when he came crashing into the earth? He started the church. He filled a little small upper room full of people and he sent them out one sermon at a time, one meal at a time, one relationship at a time, one worship service at a time. And he said, the, the, it's the, the spirit in us seems to be the method that God said, this is how I want to make the world better. I want to, I want to fill a group of people and then send them out to, to, to impact things. That was what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit didn't just kind of hit the globe and just spread out and start convicting people. He grabbed a small little group of people and said, now go do it. Now I've filled you. Now you have power. Now you can go out and do these amazing things. And when we think about the impact that the church just proper over history has had, when you think about all the schools, all the hospitals, all the missions and orphanages and, and the AA meeting places and the um, soup kitchens and all of the uh, social justice projects that have come out of the church, that, that the church with all of its scars, is still doing good things in the world and always has. Like it always has advanced society. In our own country, from emancipation to women's suffrage to labor 
reform to uh, civil rights movements, all started by church groups, all started by Christian organizations that started those things. And, and so the, the church, even though it's done some things wrong, even though it doesn't always get it right, even though we can argue and dicker over theology and we can call each other heretics and we can, you know, we can infight all the time, we're still doing good things in the world. And that's what we have to grasp is that we, we are like this, this tree that grew from a tiny seed. And, and now the people that don't even know God and don't even care to know God are, are being blessed by the things that, that the church has created. And the leaven's different because the leaven's not about creating a new thing. It's about the impact the, the leaven has on, on the flower that it goes into. It's not about making something new. It's about changing what is. I think this, this speaks of what the word does in us. This speaks about when the word goes into us and, and infiltrates. I love the line that, that he says, until it was all leavened. Like that the leaven went in until every bit of the flour was leavened. Like, and, and leaven's one of those things when you make bread, it's not like raisins. You know, you can put raisins in bread, and if you don't like raisins, you can pick them out later. Leaven's not like that. Once you put yeast in bread and you bake the bread, you can't go, no, I don't take the yeast out. I don't want the yeast. Like it's, you can't. It's now part of it. It's integrated into it. And this kind of reflects back to the, to the iceberg we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount series, where it's, you know, we focus on the little part that sticks above the water, but the gospel likes to go down and change under the water and the things we can't even think of. And I think this is powerful because I think this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to do in our life. The kingdom of God's not about church. It's not about a Sunday thing. The kingdom of God should change the way we do our family life. It should change the way we do our work life. We should work different because of the kingdom in us. We should be a different kind of a friend. We should forgive differently and love differently. And we should, we should uh, react to injustice differently because we're Christians. We, we, shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't react the same way everybody else does. It should change the way we vote. It should impact the way we, we, you know, engage politics because the kingdom is in us and changes us. It, the kingdom's supposed to get in and change our entire life. I mean, I've been, I've been thinking, spending some time in Joseph's story lately. And Joseph, you know, his brothers sell him into slavery. And, uh, and when he gets, he's serving Potiphar in, in Egypt and then Potiphar's wife accused him. He winds up in prison and he's in prison. And then, you know, the baker, he saves the, the baker and the baker or interprets the baker's dream, tells the baker not to forget him. And then I've, for some reason, never called this. Well, it's two years before the baker remembers Joseph. It's two more years in prison, you know, before the baker remembers him. And then finally comes out and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and he gets put in second command of all of Egypt. And he's basically running the world at the time. And his brothers have to come to him and ask for grain because it's such a bad famine. And they come to him and, and he's got this statement that we all love so much. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of a people. And it's just been hitting me this week that, that Joseph had to choose that reaction. He, he could have said, okay, God worked this out, but you still sold me, dang it. Like, let's focus on that for a minute. You sold me into slavery but he doesn't. He says, hey, don't sweat this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He chose to look at it. The kingdom was like so deep in him, he didn't even know how to look at his struggles outside of kingdom plan, like outside of the, the will of God and the plan of God. Like even these things that were terrible for me were part of the. He saw it in, in the context of a greater narrative that he knew that God was doing bigger things in his life. 
So when the kingdom goes into it, it affects everything. It even affects the way we look at our struggles. We can't even look at the things that are hard the same way once the kingdom gets in. Even the things that are painful suddenly become part of the kingdom. And we see them in, the, in light of the, of the kingdom narrative. So in these two parables, we see the outward visible church represented in the tree. We see the deeply invasive inner church and what the kingdom does in our hearts in the yeast. But there's some other similarities, and this is where I kind of want to focus the majority of our uh, energy here. As I feel these parables, um, especially the ones with an agricultural theme, which we've been in for like three weeks, um, really stress process. And I feel like every week we're coming back to this idea of process. You can't really talk about gardening or any kind of agriculture, seed and harvest, outside of the understanding of timing and process, that things take time. And tonight's parables are no different. Uh, so I thought we would kind of dig into this. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty because these are metaphors and we can play with them a little bit. But I think these do bear out in our life. I see three basic phases in both the seed and the yeast um, that I believe parallel the way God works in our lives. And these are important. And whoops, where did I go with that? Oh, I guess we we're supposed to do that. And the first is the harvest the finished product, and we're a harvest people. We like the finished, we like it now. We like, we're a now people. We're a hurry up people. We're a quick, I want the result immediately people. We're a, I'm frustrated that I've done sit-ups for three nights in a row and I still don't have a six-pack, you know, kind of people. Like we want it immediately. Um, but this can be frustrating. This can create tension if we focus too hard on the harvest because there's a lot that happens between planting a seed and harvesting the fruit. There's a lot that happens between adding the yeast and eating the bread. And if we're so focused on the end, we can get real frustrated in that tension. And so this final stage is harvest. You know, this is what we, this is what we love. It's what we write books about. You know, all, every book we read, nobody writes a book about the dream that God has put on their heart that they're someday going to fulfill. Like nobody buys that book. We buy the book that's about the dream that came to pass. You know, we buy the books about the, the company that was successful and we want to know how it became successful. And so all the, all the books, everything, the movies we make and everything is about the end result. It's about the harvest. And this is fine, um, except before you get to a harvest, you have that growing and rising phase. You don't just throw the yeast in the bread, add the milk and eggs, I don't know how to make bread, and just immediately throw it in the oven and expect the yeast to do anything. That's not, that's not how it works. You have, to, uh, you have to let it rise. Esther bakes bread, fresh bread every Sunday, um, which means every Saturday night she has to go in and mix up her dough and she puts it in separate bowls and she covers it with a towel and she leaves it sit. It only takes a few minutes, but if she forgets to do that, she doesn't have risen bread Sunday morning to bake. And so you, you can't you know, if, if she misses that one small step Saturday night, there's nothing there for the rising phase. And so there's no bread in the morning. And so she, she does this uh, every time. The yeast won't have time to do its work if she doesn't start it early. Last week or two weeks ago, I showed pictures of my garden and, and how this big plot of earth that used to just be dirt a couple months ago is now flourishing with green plants and everything. And I'm still frustrated because I still don't have any tomatoes. I can't grow a tomato to save my life. That's all I want in this whole world is fresh tomatoes. And I can't grow them. But, um, but I miss the, I miss, you know, I don't, you know, the, it's the growing season that drives me crazy. That I don't like to wait. 
But this is an important season. This is guitar lessons. This is piano lessons this season. This is, this is when you know you want to be a rock star and so you have to go take lessons, you know, and, 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 and you can't play the way you can see in your head yet, but you know if I keep playing, I'll be able to. This is, this is education. This is I, not because this is the next thing I do in my life, but because I know there's a thing God wants to do with my life and I know if I'm going to do that thing, I have to go to school first. And so it's, that's this phase. The growing phase is where we go to school. This is when you, God blesses you with a kid and you know you want to raise a world changer. And God's like, awesome, that means you have to be a diaper changer. You know? and, and so you spend the next 18 years you know, cleaning up after him and, and just trying to keep him alive. You know? This is the part where God's dream meets our effort and our work and, and where we put in the time and we do what we need to do to cultivate the seed that he's put in us. T.D. Jakes, one time I heard him say this metaphor that stuck with me forever, where he said, God has never made a chair. He's never made a chair. When God wanted a chair, he made a tree and put the vision for a chair in a human. And the human had to do the work of cutting down the tree, making the board, shaping it into a chair and blah, blah. God provided. God gave the vision for the chair and gave the wood for the chair, but it took somebody to make the chair. God doesn't make chairs. He makes trees. And so God puts his visions in our heart and he gives us these ideas. And he gives us the plans. He gives us everything the way everything's going to happen. And then he says, now go, do what you got to do and work. Put in the time, do what you have to do. When I married Esther, my plan was to go to Bible college for two years and then move to Florida and plant a church. So in my estimation, I was going to be 22 and planting a church. And it wound up taking us three years to get out of Bible college. And then we started working in kids and youth ministry and and somebody bought me an audio Bible um, when I graduated Bible college, and it was on cassette tape, if that doesn't date me. And I, yeah, so I carried around this like suitcase of cassette tapes, you know, and I would just one after the other, I would pop in the tapes. And, and uh, so for 10, and a, 10, 10 to 12 hours a day, I was just listening to the Bible. King James Version, Alexander Scorby, reading King James Bible to me. And over the course of about two and a half years, I listened to the Bible, I think I did the math over 70 times. Um, it took me about two and a half weeks to get through the whole Bible and I was started over again until I learned that there were other books on audio too. And so then I started to branch out a little bit. I, did, I thought the Bible was the only thing on audio, so I just kept listening to it. But so I, so I spent the time, two and a half years, just cramming the word into me. And then we started working in kids ministry and, and uh, youth ministry. And we, had a, we had a small uh, uh, home group with a small group and we did a study in that small group and God spoke to my heart that we were going to plant a church and and so we you know I was ready to go I was ready to cut the bread and butter it and eat it like I wanted it right now and instead God moved us to Gardner and I started a kids ministry and there was eight kids in my kids ministry four of them were mine and and for those eight kids I was doing characters and I was I was playing music and I was ah, doing whatever I could threw myself full force at these eight kids you know for nine years, and the, the kids ministry grew. It wasn't eight kids the whole time, but and then we left there. And then two years ago, and that, that whole time, I'm studying the scripture and I'm reading theology and I'm growing, and I'm changing, I'm learning about life, I'm getting the crap knocked out of me half the time, and then learning how to get back up. And and things are changing. And then two years ago, God comes in and says, "Okay, now it's the time." And and it's it's a it was I was ready to go 26 years ago. Like I was. And, and what's funny is now here I am 
26 years of studying scripture and, and prepping and I stand up here feeling completely inadequate and completely incapable of doing this job well. And what's laughable is to imagine 22 year old me, you know, trying to do that. Like it's, and back then I was so cocky. Like I was so, so positive. I, I was ready and I knew everything. And, and so it's about growing. It's about that time that it takes to get things ready. And most of us are fairly comfortable with this phase. Like we know this is part of it. We know we can handle this. But the part that um, I think we struggle with is the part where you put the seed in the ground and you come out the next day and it's still dirt. And you come out the next day and it's still dirt. You come out the next day and it's still dirt. And you have no idea what's going on under the surface. You have no idea if that seed is doing anything. You have no idea if that yeast that you put in the bowl, you mix it all in, you lump it into a lump, you put it in the bowl and you cover it. And the dough looks exactly the same way it does with or without the yeast. You just have to walk away from it and wonder if it's going to do its thing. So what do you do when God speaks a word into your heart and nothing changes? What do we do when we go out a week later, two weeks later, and it's still just dirt? There's nothing green showing yet. What do we do when God has, has spoken to us and we've prayed and we know what He's going to do, but there's no evidence to back it yet? Everything seems to be going in the opposite direction. And you're like, God, I know what you've put on my heart. Why is nothing happening? What do you do when the guy you just followed for three years you're pretty sure God spoke to your heart, this is the Messiah you've been waiting for. And then he dies. And he's just dead. And you're like, I guess I missed it. I guess I heard wrong. I guess that wasn't the word of God. I guess that wasn't. He's dead. Like he's gone. Like now what? And I feel the beauty of these parables is in this line, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. When God has spoken, spoken to our hearts and nothing is happening, in come these parables and they go, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is like that. Something's happening. When we see no result in our life for the things that God has spoken to us, the parables come in and go, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is like that. Trust me, the seed is under there and it's doing its thing. When you feel like everything has died, these parables come along and go, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is like that. God's in the resurrection business. Like, don't give up. It's under there. The seed is cracking open, shooting out little roots. And you can't see it yet, but God can. It's hard for us to grasp the kavod of the seed, the weight of that seed. It's hard for us to realize just how much weight is in the word of God that he speaks to our hearts. So any parable about seed is a parable about hope. It's a parable about potential. It's a parable about faith. It's a parable that says, don't give up. Something's going to grow. I know you can't see it yet. I know it looks empty. I know it looks dead. I know it looks like dirt. But something's coming. Something's growing. So how do we respond to this? You know my favorite part of being a preacher? When God picks on me all week long, I get to come and just pass it on to you and just like dump it on, <laughs> dump it on you. Because I've been living in this parable. 
Like I feel like God has spoken some things to my heart and I, and I come out and I'm, I get all fired up and Monday nights I pray and I'm all cranked up and I come out the next day and it's dirt. And I'm just like, nothing's changing, nothing's moving. Some of it to do with this church, some of it to do with my life, with my, with my family and it's, and mostly my kids. Like, I'm like, God, I know you're going to change their hearts and you come out the next day and there's no change. And so I go back and I pray, God, did I miss something? Did I get something wrong? You know, did, did I not hear you right? And, and it, not only do I hear it again, but he like pumps me up again. Like, this is going to happen. This is, oh, this is what God's plan is. This is how it's going to work. And I come back the next day all pumped up and it's dirt. I'm just living there where all the evidence seems to be going the other way. And here's what I've learned. Faith is vulnerable. Faith is vulnerable. Like pessimism is a, is a defense mechanism, right? Because if, if you don't believe for anything, then you can't, get, you're, you can't get hurt, right? You can't get disappointed. Believing is vulnerable. It's risky. Pessimism is just a hiding place. It's like if I, if I just doubt everything, you know, then I won't be, then I won't be let down. You know, it, faith is risky. It's, it's feeling exposed. When God speaks something to your heart and you're like, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to move toward that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to hang on to that. It's, it's an exposed feeling. It's a vulnerable feeling to know, what if? And the temptation is to duck back to, back to not believing, to duck back to pessimism, to duck back to it's never going to change. Nothing's ever going to get better. That's the safe place. It really is. It's a safe place. Faith is, faith is scary. And so my hopes for us tonight as we respond to these parables would be that maybe we would shake off the safety and risk. Maybe we would embrace the vulnerability of faith and take a gamble and believe that God is going to do what He's spoken in our hearts. That maybe He does want to use us. That maybe He does want to to, to move in our lives and to change things. Maybe he doesn't want us to just continue with the, with the status quo. With the, maybe he does want to do amazing things. Maybe he does want his kingdom to come and his will to be done here as in heaven. When we were lost in our sins, Jesus entered our mess. And he lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and rose so that we could have life. And the Bible calls this the gospel. And, and that comes into our heart and it changes everything about who we are. The gospel has kavod. It has weight. It seems like such a small, tiny thing. You can say it in three lines and it seems, seems tiny. And yet it impacts us so greatly. And I just cannot believe that Jesus did all that so that we could play safe. So that we could just... You know, you guys have heard me say that I, I think I think the Christian message is far more than a get out of hell free card. That it's not about where we're going to wind up. It's about here and now. And the risky part of that is that means that we have to live believing that he wants to impact our lives now. That he wants us to live the kind of life that somebody would be attracted to now. Not just if you died and would you know where you're going to wind up. That's not the question. The question is, what if you live? What if you live another 40 years? What do you want it to be about? 
you want it to just be another 40 years of, of what you've always done? The safe, bait is, you know, the safe, safe bet is to go, yeah, as long as I can live 40 years, that's fine. I'll just drag through it and be there. But faith says, no, I want this next 40 years to be impact. I want it to be, I want it to change things. I want, when I leave, I want to know that I spent my 40 years making a difference. So I think Jesus calls us to believe in him, not just believe that he was, but believe that he really wants to move in our lives, that he really wants to do something. He really wants to change things. He really wants to bring the dreams that he's put in our hearts to pass. So as we take communion and as we focus on what Jesus did, my hopes would be that we might... um, that we might gamble with faith, that we might risk, that we might say, if he was willing to pay this, who am I? Who am I not to, to, to believe? And to believe that he wants to do something here in this.